looking forward this weekend to talking about giving Bible studies. There's probably, I shouldn't say probably, I think there's greater certainty than that. I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than being a part of leading another person to know Jesus. And being uh, a part of giving Bible studies is one way that happens. It's not the only way, but it's one way. And certainly, I believe it's one of the ways that will be a significant part of of how we win souls, um, even at the end of time. Tomorrow we're going to be looking um, specifically. I'm going to share with you some of the counsel, some of both the history of Bible studies, giving Bible studies, and the future of Bible studies, because I believe I believe it's very important for us living in this hour of verse history. How are we doing here? Do we have the wrong source, maybe? Well, tonight I want to share with you a bit from John chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at, at uh, particularly tonight, Jesus and his, the example that he, he gives us as a, a soul winner. Jesus is the master soul winner, and um, so I'm, I'm hoping that as you are uh, perhaps preparing for follow-up after the Messiah's Mansion program, that the things that we share this weekend will be very useful. Jesus here in John chapter 4 is tired. You know the story, don't you? He's weary with travel. He's on his way uh, back to Galilee. He goes through the city of Samaria, and, and the Bible says here in John chapter 4 and verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. Now, I'm, spo- I'm sure there are other ways that Jesus could have gone. Sometimes he took more circuitous routes. But this day, he went right through Samaria on his way to Galilee. And on the way to Galilee, he meets this woman by the well. And I like to believe that Jesus already knew this woman was going to be by the well. I don't know that for sure, but I know some of the other encounters Jesus had. He knew specifically that the woman was going to be there, right? The Syrophoenician woman. And so this perhaps was one of those times when Jesus knew there was going to be someone he could minister to. The Lord led him to go and to be right there by the well at that time. Now, before we get into this study, I want to talk to you just a little bit about divine appointments. Because I think that when we talk about Bible studies... We have to consider the possibility of divine appointments. I want you to take, uh, take your uh, preconceived ideas away for just a minute. When we say the words Bible study, a certain picture comes up into our minds, our preconceived ideas, right? Our preconceived ideas is probably something like you go to a person's house with a, maybe a lesson or a prepared, uh, you know, study to give to them. You sit down and you go through a, a methodical study of the scriptures. Now that is a Bible study and we're going to talk more about how to do it. It's not hard and it's not intimidating to give effective Bible studies. You can do it. 
But you know, that's not the only kind of Bible study. There are what I call spontaneous Bible studies. You know, sometimes we, 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 we are so focused on this one definition of a Bible study that we fail to be prepared to give a Bible study perhaps right when God would be leading us to give it. You know, sometimes I think of the counsel that we're told. We're told that we should have a small Bible to keep with us so that we can, if we have extra time, we can make good use of it. You know, memorize some Scripture, study some Scripture, familiarize ourselves with the Word of God, fasten our, focus our minds upon the Word of God. But you know, that's not the only reason we should keep a Bible nearby. Because often, if we're looking for opportunities we can find a chance to share the Word of God. And oh, my friends, you can share your personal testimony and it's a powerful tool. You can talk about what you believe and it's a powerful tool. But the Word of God has power. The Word of God has power to change lives, to affect hearts in a way that my words can never affect them. And so, Jesus here meets what's perhaps a divine appointment, gives us an example of always being ready at any time to not just recognize spiritual need, but to awaken spiritual need. We, we must not think that the work will be finished simply by us scheduling Bible studies in our free time but rather we can give Bible studies wherever we are and whatever we're doing. You know, we often are placed in close proximity with someone whom God may have placed right there by you for a specific reason. God, God knows the hearts of those who are searching. Do you believe that? In fact, I believe we're told that in every town there are souls looking longingly towards heaven, wistfully towards heaven. Every town. There's somebody. Somebody who would be open to truth. Someone who wants to know. Someone who wants to, to grow. And I, I can just imagine in the great situation room, if there is such a thing in heaven, you know, as God looks at the needs, and then He looks at the resources, I mean, billions of angels be ready in a minute to just go down to those people who are looking, wanting, searching, hoping, wishing. Right? But no, God has chosen to reach them through us. And I wonder sometimes as I'm passing through a town or maybe it's my hometown, I wonder sometimes if God sees the needs... And he comes up somewhat empty-handed as far as resources are concerned. Or are we so much at God's disposal that he can so arrange the events of our day that we actually come in contact with those who are searching in a divine appointment and we recognize it and we fulfill it. I'm afraid that I've missed many divine appointments. 
Can you imagine the frustration of heaven? I mean, to work throughout your whole day and delays and early arrivals or, you know, whatever it is to, to bring you right, the right place at the right time with the right people. And I miss it. I remember one time, not too long ago, I was, I just think of this story as a reminder of, to me of how preoccupied I can be with my own life instead of looking to others. I was getting on one of those little regional jets, you know, the ones you have to, I'm, I'm not very tall, but you know, even I have to, I feel tall when I get in this plane, you know, I have to bend over and, and um, I was walking past the galley right there at the front of the plane. The, 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 they were loading slowly. You know, there's a bunch of people in front of me. So I was standing right next to this, the flight attendant. There's a male flight attendant in the little kitchen there. And, and uh, the line was stopped. So I'm standing there and I was tired. And all I could think of is, I want to get home. Let's get this over with, you know. And I was thinking, I was, I was in somewhere lost in thought, and, and the flight attendant said, uh, good evening, how, how are you, how are you tonight? And I said, fine, and I continued on whatever I was thinking. And, uh, probably 20 or 30 seconds went by, and I was still standing there. And he said, I'm doing great, thanks for asking. And I thought, wow, wow, here I am, a Christian, saying I have some good news to share with people, but completely oblivious to the people around me. And I learned something. I learned, I hope I learned, I try to remember those are real people. They're not just doing their job, you understand? Of course, it was his job to say hello, and it wasn't my job to say good evening, ask how he was. But people appreciate, people appreciate you taking interest in them. Treating them like a person. Saying hello, asking how they're doing, and meaning it. And I could, it was as if you could hear the cry of his soul. He wanted someone to care. Someone to, to notice. To treat him like a person, not just, not just a, an employee or a servant. The world is full of people, my friends, who are waiting for somebody. Waiting for somebody to come along. And we can be that person. So, divine appointments. What a wonderful thing. Jesus came here to the, to the well. He stayed by the well, uh, uh, even though it was noontime, about the sixth hour. And the disciples went into town to go to uh, try to buy some, some food. The Bible says, There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. Now, you have the picture in your mind. You can sort of imagine, I don't know if you've seen any of the very Adventist paintings. Adventists have the most wonderful illustrations in the Bible, don't we? We have so many paintings. Jesus is sitting here by the well, 
And the woman comes to draw water. Now, I suppose that the woman was surprised to see Jesus sitting there by himself by the well. And I'm sure that Jesus also was very surprised to see a woman coming to draw water from the well. That is, if he didn't have some divine revelation beforehand that she was going to be coming. It wasn't usual for women to come to the well to to draw water around noontime. Noon was the hottest part of the day. The women and kids go to draw water in the early morning, in the evening, about dusk, when it's cool and it's comfortable, and they they carry those heavy water pots all the way back into the, the village. So here the woman was, in the middle of the day, coming. Now, she... Jesus, seeing her, asks a drink of water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink, because disciples had gone to uh, buy meat or buy bread. Now, you know, as I know, that this caught the woman by surprise. She was completely amazed. Why would this man ask a drink of her? And so she she uh, forgets really to, to give him the water, but instead asks why he's talking to her in verse 9. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, in verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now, Jesus is doing something very interesting here. We're going to come back to this story and look at it in greater detail. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank there of himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But... Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. Now again, Jesus Jesus is doing something that is amazingly simple yet amazingly profound. He is turning this conversation from what could have been simply a secular interchange, a meeting by the well, even a glass of water or a drink of water. He's turning it into a heart-searching encounter, a spiritual conversation with this woman. Go call thy husband, come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. 
But the, uh, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such uh, to uh, worship Him. And so, as we look at this story, we can see some of the things that Jesus did that was unusual. First of all, Jesus did go beyond the socially expected norms of his time. Why? Because the woman would not expect Jesus to talk to her. First of all, Samaritans didn't talk to Jews and Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. The Jews had what they thought was the, the, you know, the higher race as it were. And if, if a, if a Jew was to meet a Samaritan, they wouldn't have a conversation. Yes, you could do business with them. That's what the disciples went to do, isn't it? The disciples went into town to do business. It was a necessity. That was allowed. You could do that. They had to buy food. But to have a, a conversation, a personal conversation, was condemned in the Jewish minds. In fact, a Jew would never borrow anything from a Samaritan because that would be, as it were, to to confess or to admit that you were inferior, you know? The, the borrower is servant to the lender. And so a Jew would never borrow anything from a Samaritan. They would never ask a favor or even receive a favor from a Samaritan. And plus, Jesus was a man, and in a very male-dominated chauvinistic society, the woman wouldn't be considered a real person to engage in a peer-to-peer conversation with. You understand? And so the socially expected norms, when, when Jesus sat by that well, Jesus expected the woman to do her business, if he had been an ordinary Jew, I'm saying, and to leave without really even making eye contact. The woman would have come to the well and expected about the same. She wouldn't have expected Jesus. She would not have offered Jesus a drink of water. Because she knew Jesus wouldn't accept it. He was a Jew. He was obviously a Jew. And a Jew would never accept a favor from a Samaritan. That was the culture. That was what was expected. And yet Jesus broke all the cultural expectations. You understand? Jesus went beyond what was expected of him. And looking the woman in the eye, he asks her for a drink of water. The disciples, it even says when the disciples got back, they were surprised that he was talking to her, right? Well, of course, they would go to do business. But they would never have had a real conversation with this woman. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. If Jesus is going beyond these social norms, if we were to apply that to our lives today, right? If we were to apply that to our lives today, and I'm to, I go back to my experience with the flight attendant, You know, it really is pretty much socially acceptable to get on a flight and not ask genuinely the flight attendant how he's doing. Isn't it? Think about when you go to the grocery store. Okay? 
everyday occurrences where you find yourself. Have you ever noticed that we go to the grocery store and we have these these socially established expectations for depending on the situation, the types of conversations that we have? Have you ever noticed that? And we just sort of fit into a pattern, don't we? Is it just me? It seems that way to me. I go to the grocery store and you know, you, you, you have this sort of limited exchange, maybe about the weather or something, you know, uh, something very superficial. And everyone expects the clerk to, you know, simply do her job or his job and, and get it done. They pay and they leave. Maybe friendly, hi, you know, smile. Have you ever tried going beyond the socially expected norms? Have you ever said to the clerk behind the counter, genuinely, something like, it's, it's fun, especially if you go into you know, someplace like Walmart at 10 o'clock at night or something, 11 o'clock at night. Man, I bet you've had a long day, huh? You must be tired. Uh, just something, something besides just the hi, hello, maybe how are you doing, or you know something where you have a genuine eye contact. And you understand that we don't have the caste system in America, supposedly, but really we almost do, don't we? Don't we? We almost. There are almost people who fit into a certain box, you know, and they're there to serve us. And it may not be the same as in Jesus' day where it was socially unacceptable and they were prejudiced. But I found that people are surprised when you have a genuine or show a genuine interest in them, in their needs, in their happiness, in them as a person. It it gets their attention. It really does. Jesus knew this. Jesus also knew that while she would never offer him a drink of water, in the desert culture, in the Middle East, a request for water could never be refused. In fact, I suppose it was then about the same as it is today. In the Arab world, a drink of water is considered a gift from God. And it cannot be refused. Even if one has to go miles to get this drink of water, it will be given. And so Jesus knew she could not refuse this. And in giving this request, in making this request of the woman... Jesus showed that he didn't see her himself as superior to her. He dissolved this caste and this, this indifference that socially would have existed. He showed his own humility and he showed that he would receive a favor from a Samaritan woman. And this completely amazed her. It amazed her so much that she forgot to give him a drink and immediately tried to find the reason for his request. 
She, the issue of water, remember, remember, it's a request that can, cannot be refused. It's a sacred request. He's in the middle of the desert and the well was some distance from the town. He's obviously hot and tired and thirsty. And as important as a request for drinking water was, it, it disappeared from the woman's mind in the, in the shock and amazement that this Jewish man had asked her for a drink. And so she wanted to find out why did he ask? What is different about this man? How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I, I have a theory, and I don't know, I found it to be quite true, that when you treat people differently than they expect to be treated, particularly better than they expect to be treated, <laughs> it arouses their curiosity. People are used to being pretty much treated in the same way. That those socially expected norms. But these differences arouse a curiosity. And the woman says, what is it with this guy? What's different about him? And friends, I don't think it's that hard in our culture today to treat people better than they're used to being treated. I heard a story one time about courtesy in the United States. There was a, 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 a on a subway, I think it was, a, a man got up to give a woman his seat. She was so su- surprised she fainted. And um, when she came to, she began to thank him profusely and he was so surprised he fainted. <laughs> it's probably not true, but it illustrates... It illustrates our culture today, doesn't it? I mean, we're just sort of, we're just sort of in our own worlds. We're, we're not very easily drawn out and we don't very easily draw other people out. Treat people differently and they'll notice. Treat people differently and you may find some of the divine appointments God is leading into your pathway. Differences arouse curiosity, and curiosity combined with friendliness yields witnessing opportunities. Um, especially positive differences, I might should add. Now notice the situation that Jesus has created. He is there with one specific purpose in mind, isn't he? He wants to give her a knowledge of the truth. He wants to share something with her. But how has, how is he going to do that? Obviously he knows that she won't accept an outright favor from him. But now he has her right where he wants her. No rejection of an offer of truth. Now she's asking questions, right? He's created what we call in education a teachable moment. Did you know? Quite a few of you are students, right? Did you know that a teacher can't teach you anything? If you ever become a teacher, you'll learn that. Uh, but a teacher can't teach you anything. Only a student can learn. And you know what? You can, you can stand in front of a class 
day after day after day, and you can sort of tell when nothing's nothing's getting through, you know? Nothing's really sinking in. But let a student come to a what we call a teachable moment when they start asking questions and all of a sudden their curiosity is 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 peaked, you know? And that's when learning takes place. Often when it's be, maybe it's because they thought they knew it all until they got their first test back or some other reason, but only a student can learn. And it's the same in giving Bible studies. You can give all the right information. You can be really good at giving it. But if a person doesn't want to hear it, if a person isn't wanting to learn it, it doesn't do any good. I could tell you all about all of the techniques for giving Bible studies. You could have the perfect set of Bible studies, all the proof texts. You could have the the right style for giving it, the right situation for giving it. But if the person doesn't actively engage their mind to learn, it does no good. And so a good teacher does teach, but it's by awakening curiosity in a student's mind, right? It's by helping to create those teachable moments on a consistent basis. And a good Bible student who is sharing Bible studies with someone else must also learn to awaken those teachable moments in the hearts of others. And this is what Jesus has done. Jesus has made her ask him questions. Now he can answer with whatever he chooses. He's not at the well offering her a tract. Now, there's nothing wrong with offering tracts. You understand? Some people want them. But how much better it is to give a person a tract after they've wanted a tract. You understand? How much more effective it will be. And so she has not rejected anything from him. She has recognized Jesus as unprejudiced, different. She's asking questions of Jesus, which Jesus can respond to with whatever answers he wants to give. And what does he respond, by the way? Have you ever noticed the disconnects in this conversation? I mean, a question is asked and a totally different answer is given. And a question is asked and a totally different... I mean, it's as if a game's going on here. She's trying to avoid the real subject and he's trying to get to the real subject. But she's asking. And that's the important part. She's asking. Jesus forcing nothing upon her. He is now seeking to awaken a sense of need. Now, how does he seek to awaken that sense of need? He basically says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. I mean, her question was, Why are you talking to me? Right? And Jesus responds by saying, if you knew who I was, you would have asked, you would have been asking me for a drink of water. I'd give you the real thing. And, and the woman looks at this Jewish man who is different, sitting by the 
well and notices that he has no pot and no rope, was Jesus talking about literal water, physical water, or was he talking about spiritual water? He was talking about spiritual water, but had the conversation gone from secular to spiritual yet? Not really, not in her mind. Because you notice what she says after Jesus tells her, look, if you drink the water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. She comes back and she says, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. That would be pretty nice. I mean, after all, it was the heat of the day. I suppose that this woman was sort of socially outcast in the city, and that's why she didn't go when the rest of the women went to draw water. And so it's, always, it's a pain to come in the middle of the day. It's an inconvenience. It's miserably hot out here in the beating sun. And so now I have an opportunity to get water from this Jewish stranger, and I won't have to come ever again. Now, again, is she thinking spiritual or is she thinking physical? She's still thinking physical, but what has he done? He has awakened a sense of need. Something that she senses can uh, he can help her with. Sometimes we shouldn't start with first awakening a sense of spiritual need, but even a, a sense of physical need. Sometimes it is that a health problem or some other thing that we can help with, right? An entering wedge that can help move the conversation to spiritual things. And so a sense of need is awakened. She knows one thing, what she has does not completely satisfy. And so she asks him for the water that he is offering. Now, this is another disconnect. Sir, give me this water that I come not, come not hither to draw. And Jesus says, Go call your husband. Where does that come from? Why did Jesus ask her to go call her husband? He wants to move her from the sense of physical need, something better, something... She knew the water from Jacob's well didn't completely satisfy he wants her to recognize that the sins in her life aren't spiritually satisfying her either. He wants her to recognize that the sins in her life aren't satisfying her either. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus now reveals his divinity to her. Jesus now shows her that he is God by revealing to her that he knew, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidest thou truly. You see what Jesus has done? Jesus has taken her from simply a secular Everyday, common occurrence. They happen to pass. They happen to meet. To where she is asking him questions. To where she is wanting something from him. 
And now to the point that she realizes the life she's living doesn't satisfy. Now I want to tell you something about this woman. We know from inspiration. She wasn't just an ordinary woman. She wasn't just a woman who happened to be at the well that day. She wasn't just your average secular mind. She was a woman that the Holy Spirit had been working with, convicting for some time. She was searching. She was seeking. Maybe she didn't know what for, but she was searching and she was seeking. I I have a little bit of a problem with those who feel that we have to devise new methods. Listen to me carefully. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable here. But I have a little bit of a problem with those who believe we have to devise new methods to reach the secular mind. Yes, I believe. I believe that we should be reaching out to people's felt needs, you know, physical emotional health. Building bridges with secular people who have no spiritual interest. But let me tell you, every occurrence that I find of evangelism in the New Testament church was with people who may have been in secular positions, may have been in secular situations, but they were spiritually searching and seeking. We are to build bridges. We are to make contacts, yes, with people who may have no spiritual interest. But we are not to try to do the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing them somehow to a, an intellectual religion without awakening a spiritual searching and seeking. The Holy Spirit does that work, my friends. And there are thousands, millions of people in this world who are secular-minded, but the Holy Spirit is working upon them. God is striving with their hearts and bringing to them an awareness of their need, and they're searching and they're seeking for something. And God would use us to bring those spiritually seeking people into a knowledge of the truth. Oh, the model of evangelism is not a model that only fits religious people. You understand what I'm saying? The New Testament church reached out into the communities, yes, but it evangelized through people that the Holy Spirit was already bringing into a sense of need, a sense of awareness, a sense of longing. Here we find that Jesus successfully brings her to the point of recognizing her spiritual need. Now, when, she, when he brought up this subject, go call your husband, what did she do again? She changed the subject. I mean, another one of those disconnects in the story where it was going just fine and all of a sudden it veered off another direction. Have you ever had conversations like this? I mean, this woman, she, she says, oh, Gulp. He knows. <laughs> well, our fathers worshipped in Mount Gerizim, but the Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. What do you think? 
What was she doing? Jesus, Jesus knew people. Jesus studied people's hearts. And so Jesus knew what was going on right then. You know, sometimes when we're having a spiritual conversation and you touch a nerve and the people sort of either close up or head a different direction, our natural reaction is to say, oops, I blew it. This is where it takes skill. It takes prayer. I don't know. Jesus is amazing, right? The woman takes the conversation completely from her. Now it is spiritual, but it's from away from her. Why? Because she's being convicted. And there are many different reactions that come to conviction. I have a few of them listed here. You may see joy when a person is being convicted. At the same time, you may see sorrow. You may see people telling others, sharing what they're learning. Others may tell everyone, don't go to those meetings or don't go to that place. You may see personal application, people's lives changed. It's It's one of the surest signs of conviction, my friends. When a person comes to the meeting or he comes after a Bible study and he says, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to do something differently, you know they're being convicted. I remember one fellow at Evangelistic Series. He came several days after we had studied um, clean and unclean meats. And he said, what do I do about the pork in my refrigerator? What do you mean, what do you do with the pork in your refrigerator? Well, I've decided not to eat it anymore, but how do I get rid of it? Well, you can throw it away. He said, really? He said, yeah. He said, the Bible says don't touch it. (laughs) I thought it was funny, but I was happy because he was convicted, right? Amen? You're happy when a person's convicted. And we assured him that it was all right to to touch it while he was throwing it away. That wasn't the the main intention of the text. But you see, people react differently to attention. Some people cry tears of sorrow. Some people cry tears of joy. Some people want to have more and more and more Bible study. Some people want to avoid you, and they quit coming to your meetings. And I'm serious. Too often we assume, oops, I blew it. I did something wrong. I said something wrong. No, nothing's gone wrong. The Holy Spirit's working. And when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the heart, something gives. Something changes. It's visible. It's demonstrated somehow. People think, well, I, I, I don't show if I'm convicted. You sure do. One way or another, when the Holy Spirit is working on the heart, there is conviction. The life changes, lifestyle changes. People become more friendlier or more resistant. People began asking questions or giving objections. People show obvious peace and contentment or restlessness and fidgeting on the front row. Just watch during an evangelistic series. I used to be so proud of those people that came and turned to all the Bible texts and they sat there in the same place every single night. They came night after night after night and every night they said that was a great sermon. Great sermon. That was a great sermon. I thought these are the best interests. They're going to be baptized. And they spent all the way through the series enjoying every bit of it. 
Always the same. And I started realizing, I want people to get upset, you know? I want people to be stirred because that's a sign of conviction. If a person is convicted, they can brush off what you say and keep going. And they liked it. It was fine. But no real change takes place in the heart and life. And so we need to recognize signs of conviction, don't you think? In our conversations with other people, even when we're giving Bible studies, an impromptu Bible study like Jesus is giving here, it doesn't matter. We need to be able to recognize signs of conviction. What do you do when someone becomes angry because of what you've studied in the Bible? What do you do? They begin challenging you. It's another time to show them you're different, right? You've got to smile. You've got to love them. You've got to not take it personally. It's never a personal debate between you and somebody else. You listen to them and you respect them. That's what Jesus did with the woman on the well, didn't he? He respected her as if she was a person. So often we come to a Bible study and say, we have something to give. We have the truth after all. So listen to me. And just general courtesy would demand that we respect their opinion. So listen to them. Ask them how they feel. Ask them what they think. But then ask them what the Bible says. Let them know you can, you can avoid me, but you can't avoid the Holy Spirit. If it's truth, it's truth, my friend. This isn't what I'm teaching you. This is what the Bible says. And if they're angry, it's because they're being convicted that that's the case. If they're avoiding you, it's because they're being convicted. So this is the time for love to win. For us to show ourselves more interested in them. More loving, more patient, more kind. But don't give up because a person becomes convicted. The woman's convicted, so she changes the subject. She moves it off of herself, and Jesus patiently listens. And then he said, you know what? It's not really that important. Whether you worship in Mount Gerizim or you worship in Jerusalem, the time is coming when that won't be an issue Those who worship the God will have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Another way, another way that He showed her that He wasn't prejudiced. Another way that He went beyond what was expected. He showed her His open-mindedness. But then He said, but salvation is of the Jews. Why? Because the Messiah would come from among the Jews. It's the truth. We can't avoid the truth in trying to make people happy. Salvation is of the Jews. And that's obviously what the woman understood he was meaning because she says, I've heard that when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, I am he. I am the Messiah. And the woman, forgetting her water pot, forgetting his request for a drink, left it and ran to the city. The Bible story records that when she got to the city, 
she told all the men, Come, see a man that told me everything I ever did. Okay, so she was an evangelist. She may have exaggerated a little bit, but she was telling others what she had experienced. And I'm sure she thought he could have told her everything she ever did. In the meantime, the disciples have come back. Now, let me ask you a question. How many searching people had the disciples found in the village of the Samaritans? Were there searching people there? Yes. Were there people there who had needs? Let me tell you, friends, if a person does not know Jesus as their personal Savior, they have needs. Something is missing in their life. They may not know it yet, but what they have does not ultimately satisfy. And the disciples have gone all the way into Samaria, the, the town of the Samaritans. They have done their business following the socially accepted, expected norms. And they've come back not finding one person who wanted anything that they had to offer. The woman goes into the town of Samaritans and basically the whole town charges out to the well to meet Jesus. I love the description of the Desire of Ages. I don't think I have it here today. But I love the, the, um, the description in the Desire of Ages where the disciples come back to Jesus and he, now he's, he's, uh, you know, he's alone, perhaps right as the, as the woman left. You know, the disciples arrive and, and he's, set, he's, he's looking out into the fields, which is springtime, you know. He's looking out into the fields and he's got this look of complete happiness and contentment on his face. And he's looking out in the fields and he says, you think it's months, four months until the harvest? What I see is fields ready to be harvested. They wanted him to eat and what did he say? I have meat that you know not of. My meat is to, and drink is to do the will of my Father. Jesus was so personally satisfied because he had seen the miracle of the Holy Spirit awakening new life in a heart. You know, this, my friends, is the, is the joy that Jesus lived for. And once you have tasted that joy, nothing else can really satisfy Nothing is more fulfilling than seeing the Holy Spirit work in a human heart and bring peace to a human life and knowing that you are a small part of it. Nothing. Nothing can satisfy like that. The, Bi the Bible even says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy was that he knew souls would be saved as a result of his sacrifice. And do you recognize, my friends, that Jesus, when praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, he's praying for us too. Not only do I pray for them, he says, but to those who shall believe on me through their word. That's us. 
Jesus prayed that his joy might be fulfilled in us. Jesus prayed that we would taste and see the same joy and fulfillment that he tasted and saw when he saw this Samaritan woman, her life transformed by the grace of God, changed by the Spirit of God. And so this woman became a soul winner. What are the principles we can learn? Go beyond social norms and expectations. Demonstrate respect and humility. Seek ways of awakening sense of need. Tactfully point out the futility of this world. Share personal testimony at appropriate time. And recognize signs of conviction. These are principles that we can apply in our everyday conversations, aren't they? They're principles. It may take some practice, but these are simple principles that we can apply in our everyday conversation so that, my friends, when God has a need, He can also have a resource. He can meet, match us up with people in our town, in our workplace, in our whatever we're doing throughout our day who are searching and seeking and need what we have to offer. Don't wait until there is an official appointment to study a set of lessons to be a Bible worker or a soul winner. A soul winner is not a soul winner only during certain hours of the day or when around certain people. A soul winner is a person who's known, who has met Jesus and wants to find every way possible to share him with others. I want to be that kind of a soul winner. I want to win souls as Jesus won souls. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, tonight we are grateful to you. We're thankful for your sending your son Jesus, not just to die for our sins, but Lord, to give us the example of how we can share the good news of salvation with others. Lord, tonight we realize that we have lots of conversations every day. Some of them we we uh, could probably do better in. Some of them may be a divine appointment that we're going to miss if we don't seek ways to find the searching hearts. Lord, some people might not respond. They might turn cold doesn't mean we failed. I just pray, Father, that we would follow your example, that we would learn from the experience of Jesus at Jacob's well, that we might learn to seek and to save those who are lost as he did. Make us soul winners, I pray, not, not part of the time, but help it to be part of who we are. Lead us by your Spirit, I pray, this week, to somebody, somebody looking for light and peace, something that they're missing in their life. And Lord, don't just lead us to that person. Help us to fulfill your, your call. Help us to recognize it and, and, and maybe even know that we've had a divine appointment. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.